Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Hi, you guys. I'm Jeff. Nice to see you guys. I'm the, one of the teaching pastors at Mariner's. Um, I, I, um, I teach our 7.30 p.m. Sunday night service in our chapel at the Irvine campus, and which is really great, except that this is, you know, this is, I'm just really thankful of Mission Viejo to adding to moving to four services because um, by the time I get done with today, I'll have taught five times. So way to go, you guys. Thanks for the extra practice that I get to have doing uh, my job. So, um, but great to be with you guys. If The first time I spoke here, it was kind of surreal. I'll just kind of, some of you guys weren't here for that, but I, I um, this is kind of a special place for me. I, I went to school at Santa Margarita High School and this is the place, this very place was where I saw the movie Wayne's World with my buddies in high school. And so I sat right kind of back there and... So it's a very unique and special place for me, and um, so it's good to be back here. Um, it is a Mother's Day. It's really a Mother's Weekend in so many ways, but it's, it's Mom's Day, and we love moms, and i um, so excited that you are here with us, especially those of you who are moms. I, um, my mom, my mom's amazing. Um, I was raised by, I'm the only child of a single mom, and um, my mom's a great lady, and you know, she, like all moms, particularly those of uh, moms who are single moms, have to wear kind of a, a bunch of roles, and they sort of have to do a lot of protecting and providing in ways that, you know, kind of on their own. And for me, in my house, the most evil thing that you could possibly encounter, the one thing that needed to be resisted above all else in my house growing up was sugar. Any form of sugar, you know, like, and I don't, some of you are like, sugar, it's impossible to avoid. You eat it with your fruit or, okay, but okay, barring that, I mean, like, sweetened, like, pouring white sugar, anything that had sugar in it was banned from my house. So this is more evil than anything. I mean, it's like, sugar's the worst, then, like, drugs, <laughs> like, acts of terrorism. I mean, it was like, the, sugar is the ultimate, and probably those, all those people who join gangs and do drugs probably had too much sugar when they were kids. I mean, it's like, somehow, that was kind of the life I grew up in. I mean, it was so strict that I, we weren't allowed to have white bread. Like, white bread was like, why don't you just eat a piece of pie? You know, I'm like, it's, white, it's bread. I mean, you know, whatever. So, but my first couple of birthdays, um, because, you know, sugar was the ultimate evil, um, my mom made a birthday cake out of meatloaf. <laughs> that was my cake. And, and the way that it was sort of cleverly frosted was with mashed potatoes, because that's exactly the same thing as a regular cake. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, you probably shouldn't buy anything. You should not go with Tim to CVS and get a card for your mom because that's horrible. That's an act of cruelty to a little kid on his birthday day. Here's your cake. It's a meatloaf. That was my childhood, right? Now, I had, um, I had um, we were allowed, this is before they realized this, like now I'm a, I'm a parent, but you know, like the, you, can, you should never give a kid like a diet drink. I didn't know this until I was a parent, but because I was raised on like diet drinks. It was like the worst thing you could, you know, now we know that the chemicals they put in diet drinks would just like melt your soul or something. There's something so awful, I don't even know. But like, I grew up on, it was like, it's Diet Coke. There's no sugar in it, so it's okay. So I had all this Diet Coke, I had Diet 7-Up, and to this day, I have a memory of, when I was sick, that was the drink that I, was, I got was Diet 7-Up. So now, if I'm around it, just the smell of Diet 7-Up, just go ahead and just punch me in the face. Just go ahead and just, just I'd rather have that than have the Diet 7-Up kind of going on. Now, my mom, I think, did realize at some point, especially being a single mom, that I was going to be in other situations with other kids, that, you know, I was going to be in daycare or whatever else it was. And she realized I was kind of in my own universe in terms of the, like, level of strictness with regards to sugar. So she kind of was like... I'm probably going to have to introduce this to him against my best wishes. You know, he's going to have to taste sugar at some point. So she decided that the way to do this was, you know, we're going to have to start introducing sugar and we'll do it. We'll start with the chocolate chip cookie in our house. 
So I remember this. I actually remember there was like, she was like, here we go. Like, I mean, this whole moment, it's like this, you know, you don't know what's going to happen here. Don't push this button. It's like this totally, and there I am. I take the cookie, and she's like, okay, what happens? And 15 minutes later, I was a stinging velociraptor. It was like, wow, <laughs> I'm jumping up on stuff, and I'm like tackling things, and I'm, I bit her, and I took off my own shoes and threw them in the toilet and was trying to flush them down the toilet. And I'm like, I turned into a werewolf. It was like somehow I had... I had eaten the thing that she, I mean, I had become her worst nightmare, you know? And I think she realized at that moment, like, I'm going to, he's going to be at someone's birthday party, and he's going to tear apart, he's going to rip someone's heart out and eat it at the party, like, ah! I mean, it's just, I'm going to have to figure out how to give this guy sugar, because he's out of control. So, over the course of, you know, the next couple of months, years, or whatever, you know, I, she slowly began introducing more and more sugar, again, against her best wishes, probably thinking by now I'd be in a gang, or do commit acts of terror, or whatever else it would be, but I, I, I managed to survive. And now I have my own kids, and of course we have like we have like sugar bonanza in my house. It's like you know, oh yeah, we have app, we have we have juice in our refrigerator. It's called Tang. It's just sugar with little food coloring in it. And oh, you guys, you know, I'm like, you guys want some white bread? Have some white bread with your white bread. And if you spill it, mop it up with the white bread and eat it. It just, I mean, I'm like every, I just we're all about sugar in our house now. And I'm sure my kids will have some kind of you know type two diabetes. I mean, it'll be some awful thing that I did to them. But I'm reacting against my mom, who is a wonderful lady, and kid and parents. Moms have to deal with kids at all different stages of life. Mine, you know, my mom was a protector and a provider in the best way she knew how. And my earliest memory of this is by not allowing me to have sugar. Moms, you deal with so much. You have kids that throw tantrums. I have a two and a half year old in my house too. And I've seen the woes personally that parents have to go through, moms specifically, of trying to get a willful kid into a, into a, um, like, a child seat in a car. I mean, and I remember before I had kids, I was like, the, the way that they're treating that child, the mom, getting that child into that car, how dare they? You know, I am, I will never do that. And, and now I watch a mom who's got their knee up onto the kid's chest, putting them down at the elbow, locking up. And I walk by like, you do, I'm, I'm right with you. You go. And they have the, and they have the full, their hair's being pulled. And you get really good. Okay, don't pull my hair. Please don't. That's not, don't do that, please. Please don't pull mommy's hair. Okay. And you have the, like, forearm shiver in the thing. And there you go. <laughs> the door, the, the van doors are all automatic now. It's like you give it about 10 seconds of relief and you walk around the car. You put the kid in. Lock him in. And you walk around the other side of the car and you're like, I get to breathe a little bit. And those moms, I just know where you are. And I just so, I stand with you, beside you. I get it. Moms, you have to deal with kids with skin knees. I have my own kids, like I said, and when they skin their knee, I'm like, that's an awesome one. Good job. Your knee's going to be a lot tougher now. Let's go. Keep going. They look at me like, I want mommy. I'm like, I get it. You know, I totally get it. My kids, when they get sick in the middle of the night, when they barf, I jump to it because I'm really, I'm a compassionate and caring father. And I walk over to the kids and I go, it looks like you barfed. You most definitely did. It's everywhere. Can I help you guys? I want mommy. <laughs> I'm sorry, Amanda. I tried. I just don't have what it takes. I, you, it's going to have to be you. They only want you in this moment in their life. And I, I just I feel terrible about it. But this is kind of what moms do. You deal with bruised egos and broken hearts. You deal with kids as they get older and they have their first relationships, their first boyfriend and first girlfriend. And you begin to sort of sort that stuff out. You see heartache and you see kids getting cut from teams and friends being mean. And you wonder about all those things. And just thank you for all of that stuff. We know that no mom is perfect, but we know that you play an unbelievably unique and special role in so many of our lives. And for some of you guys, at this Mother's Day might be your first Mother's Day as a mom. Probably unique for some of you. For some of you, this might be one of, maybe it's your first, but maybe it's a Mother's Day without your mom. And maybe that this is a kind of a unique and sort of hurting time for you. 
But in some way, maybe this community might be a place where you go, okay, I can be loved and this can be a family for me and I can be cherished and I can be valued. And I hope that's kind of your experience as we kind of go through today in some capacity. Well, my mom, like I said before, was the best provider and protector that she could be. And probably as I think through my life, the funniest and often the most memorable and sometimes the most tragic and difficult times of my life, somehow my mom was present in some capacity. And as we all kind of think about our own lives and as life begins to run into us and hit us in difficult and challenging times, my guess is that all of us protect and defend and provide for and look out for something that's super important to us. But what I want to say is, what if today on this Mother's Day, what if I was to say something to you that what if those most important things in our lives, the things that matter the most deeply to us, weren't the things that, we, that we weren't up to us to control? They weren't up to us to protect or to provide for. What if those things that were so deeply important to us weren't really up to us at all? What if they were up to someone else? What if those things that we held so deeply were best provided for by someone other than us? Here's what I mean. If you have a Bible, you want to turn to 1 Kings. It's the 11th book of the Bible. If you're like, I don't know where 1 Kings is. We don't read a lot out of there. If you, it's okay to use your table of contents. Nobody else will judge you. I'll, I'll put the scripture on the screen as well. But it's about a fifth of the way into the Bible. And um, while you're doing that, I'll give you some background of the story. We're in chapter 17 of 1 Kings. And here's the background of the story. There's a, we're, we're kind of beginning to see the, the rise of ministry by a guy named Elijah. And Elijah is a, he's a prophet. A prophet, you know, um, sometimes they kind of get lumped into this sort of idea of they only talk about things that are future events. And a prophet is basically, this is, this is all the, the best way to describe them is this. This is God's mouthpiece. They just say stuff that God tells them to say. That's all that that is. And occasionally, once in a rare occasion, it's about the future. But they basically are talking about the state of things as they are from God's perspective to people. So Elijah's a prophet. And he is, he has a, he has an audience with the king Ahab. Ahab's a horrible king in the sort of history of Israel, and he married a woman named Jezebel. If you ever heard sort of negative connotation about someone being called Jezebel, this is the reason. She's really lame. This is her, his wife, Jezebel. She worships a god, a Babylonian god named Baal or Baal. It depends how you say it. And this god is uh, he's frequently represented by having a thunderbolt in his hand. He's the god of fresh water. Now, in a dry and desert and arid climate, the god who controls the water is the most powerful and most important god. So the Babylonians worship this god, Baal or Baal, and Elijah goes to Ahab to say there's going to be a drought. And what he's saying is Yahweh, Israel's God, is not going to allow there to be another drop of water unless he commands it. So this isn't going to be about Baal, and you think it's about Baal, Ahab, but it's about Yahweh, Israel's God. Now, this is all kind of a setup to show that we'll kind of, if you're familiar with Elijah's story, this is, a, this is all of a setup to see this sort of showdown between Yahweh and Baal. And it kind of begins, you begin to see sort of throughout this whole story, this is the backdrop of this cont- continual sort of stepping up of this showdown. Yahweh, Baal. Now, he tells Ahab, you're going to have a huge drought. And then it says that, he went, that Elijah went to go and hide, presumably because Ahab's upset about this proclamation. And he goes to hide. He hides in a little creek and um, there's, or, or next to a little creek. And every day, God says, I'll, I'll bring you food. And this is how I'll bring to you food in the, you know, in the land of a drought. I'll bring to you food by ravens will come by with meat and bread. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know how he receives that. I don't know if he's like sweet or if he's like, I've seen ravens. That's gross. I don't know what he says. But evidently, your supply for living will be airlifted into you by ravens every single day while you're hiding out in the creek. And we have no idea how Elijah's supposed to respond to that. But every day, there he is in the creek, hanging out. When he gets hungry... 
the Ravens show up. I mean, it's, it's the weirdest thing. So this is how he lives. This is where we pick up the story, all right? You guys with me? Here we go. It's in chapter, chapter 17, verse 7. says this. Sometime later, the brook, the creek, dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. And so he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I might have a drink? Now, you have to wonder, Elijah's a guy, he, when there is a natural disaster of this magnitude, a drought, the people who are always affected first are the poorest. Widows are poor, particularly in this time. And so Elijah has to be going, really? I'm going to go ask a widow for a, a drink of water. The land, animals are dead, trees are dead, crops are dead, everything's dead and dying. I'm going to go to this woman and I'm going to say, can you give me something to drink? Can I ask someone else? How about the rich guy who, you know, has a big amount of property? Who has a, you know, can I ask someone else? Nobody's supposed to ask a widow. So he walks to this gate and immediately he's able to identify the widow. It's not clear how he identifies her. We don't know if they wear special clothes. She has a special uniform that they wear. But clearly he walks in and goes, probably because of her poverty, he goes, that's a widow. And he says, can you bring me a cup of water? I'm really thirsty. And then, and then she, she, he says this in verse 11. This is awesome. So can I have a drink? And then as she was going to get it, he called, and bring me please a piece of bread. I mean, really? Anything else I can get you? Hey, while you're on your feet, could you just stop by the pantry and grab me a piece of bread? That'd be terrific. I'm just going to sit out here under the shade while you go and get that. I mean, it's like, really? Are you serious about this? And then the woman has this answer. This is unbelievable. It's just like, the world's saddest answer you could imagine. Seriously, she says. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, okay. I mean, it's like, we, uh, wow. I mean, like, it's the, I mean, and there's no, there's no real, you don't get in the Hebrew and even in the, the you know, there's no, in English, there's not even a, like a sense of how she says it. There's no like, and she, she, she thought for a moment and was overwhelmed with emotion and said to him, or she said sarcastically, <laughs> I got enough food for a tortilla and then we're going to die. You don't, have any, you don't have any sense of how she says it. But all you get is this is the saddest plan ever. It's going to be our own last supper. Hey, I'd give you some bread. We have just enough for a tortilla. We're going to eat it and then we're going to die. Can I get you anything else, Elijah? I mean, you just don't, you don't know what's going on. So then he says this to her. This is verse 13. He says this. Don't be afraid. That is the most often repeated command in the Bible. Don't be afraid. He says, go home and do as you have said. But first, <laughs> awesome, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and for your son. Okay, stop right there. <laughs> I realize you only have enough for a tortilla. But if you could make me a small loaf of bread first and then feel free to go ahead and make something for your son and for yourself. I realize there's a drought and you're probably hungry. But if you could just give me a small loaf. First it was a piece, now it's a small loaf. Okay, now you understand what's happening, okay? Now, then he says this to sort of authenticate what he's trying to say. Here. He says, verse 14, For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day, of, the, day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told her, which I always think is amazing that she actually did this. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. For the jar, of, the jar of flour was not used up and the jug, jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So he asks for a loaf of bread and then he says, don't be afraid, there'll be enough. Now you have to wonder, we're also seeing the sort of the rise of this prophet Elijah, God's messenger here. And he's, 
He's going to say, God's going to provide somehow. And you have to wonder, how does he know this? And the only answer we kind of, he's kind of building his own faith. The practical answer is, he's been in the brook by the creek, you know, in the little canyon there. And every day, the airlifting ravens came in and dropped food for him, enough for him to live. So he has this experience of being able to say, God will provide. And he says to the woman, don't worry, there's going to be enough. And if God is consistent with the way that we sort of see his sort of pattern or preferred method of kind of providing for people in the Bible, it isn't with an excess so that she could like, you know, it's not like there's enough bread to throw away. Most of what you see is there's enough for that day. Because she doesn't turn to her son and go, hey, let's open a bakery. Everyone will be so excited. Let's have, we have so much bread, we don't have to do with it. There seems to be just enough for that day, just like the ravens. And she says, don't be afraid. Now, or Elijah says, don't be afraid. And he says to her, first make me a loaf of bread. Now, the original audience is different than us because we look at it and go, really, seriously, Elijah? Why don't you ask for a steak, too? I mean, what else do you need, you know? Like, how, kind of with the gall, really. What's actually happening here is this. When God's spokesperson, the prophet speaks, it is as if God is speaking himself. And when he says, bring to me a loaf of bread, what he's actually saying is, give a loaf of bread to God. This is a very clear, the original audience would have made no mistake about that. This is about you giving first to God and second to your own family. Keep on reading verse 17 and 18. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally he stopped breathing. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me? What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Now all of a sudden, the generous sort of, we're living on this day-to-day bread supply sort of looks more like an act of cruelty. Really? I mean, you just kind of kept us alive, and then you're going to kill my son? And remember, any accusation she makes or questions against Elijah is as if she's questioning God himself. Really, God? What's this about? Did you come here to make me feel guilty, to know the depth of my own sin, and then kill my son? It's a desperate landscape. There's nothing living. She's lonely, and she's she's a widow, and she's got a son. Now, in this particular time, the level of desperation that a widow would experience is way different than we can imagine. Here's why. In this time... Women cannot own property. They cannot hold jobs. They cannot even inherit their own husband's property, their own house, which means the house that she lives in can only be inherited by her own son. There's a special and unique bond between mothers and sons in this particular time and place and culture. I mean, women get married at the age of about 14 or so to a man who's probably in his mid to late 20s. And when the life expectancy of most people tops out at about 50 years old, sometimes people will live longer, but most people are living at about 50 years old, that means you have a lot of widows. And if they do not have sons, they do not have a place to live. They cannot work. They can't, they're, they're, even their testimony in court isn't even upheld. They're fully marginalized. So to have, to have a woman who has a son, a mom, who's a widow, to lose that son is to lose more than just sort of the, the grief of losing your own son. Her whole lifeline to the rest of her, I mean, her future is shattered. She's going to be kicked out of her own house. Someone else could live in her own house. It's a pretty unique situation here. And she says to God, why did you come here? 
You came here to kill my son. You came here to, you came here to remind me of my own sin. She internalizes everything. And it's pretty clear by all, I mean, even by our own senses, our most generous sense, we would say, her son was her everything. All she had left, everything that she poured into him was all that she had. And when he was gone, it meant that her own life was in jeopardy. Even her own identity was probably lost in this as well. She internalizes it and she says something that's kind of unique. She begins to make it her own fault. She says, did you come here to remind me of my sin? As if what she's saying is this. This is my fault. I tried to protect and I tried to provide and I couldn't do enough. And what is it that I didn't do because you took him because I was disobedient. It was my fault, wasn't it? To lose the thing that we try so hard to protect gives us that sense of such loss and failure and it begins to cause us to question things in a way we never thought possible. I am feeling guilt that I never thought I would have known. This is a story of real faith. It's not a perfect sort of mom faith where everything sort of lines up beautifully and her kids are well behaved and everybody's awesome and God is great. It's sort of this picture of really God, are you serious? What am I supposed to do? What did I do to deserve this? I didn't, I can't protect and I didn't provide and everything that I wanted to be is not working out. I remember she's seen God's provision. She's seen when they were down to their last sort of tortilla, I mean of bread. She's seen, he, she has seen that moment when then God says there's going to be enough. And in this moment she goes, I don't know if there's enough. I don't know if you can provide. I don't know if you can restore. And so she accuses Elijah, which is the same thing as accusing God. Have you come here to kill my son? Verse 19. Give me your son, Elijah replied. And he took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying. And he laid him on his bed. Now, you have to remember at this moment, Elijah is still learning how to do the prophet thing. So he picks up this kid and you have to be wondering what he's thinking. Okay, God, you've, you've given two. I, I don't know what to do here. And he says this desperate prayer. He says two prayers. Here's the first one. He says this. Then he cried out to the Lord. Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Now, if you notice, it's pretty similar in its tone to her own questioning of Elijah, the, the mom's questioning of Elijah. She says, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come here to remind me of my sin and kill my son? And he says... Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? There's a similar level of desperation in my mind about those two things. His first prayer is, really, God? Are you going to do this to her? Then he says this, verse 21. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and he cried out to the Lord. Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. His prayer isn't just about the life of this boy, although it's precious. It's actually about restoring life to the mom, too. Because remember, if he dies, she's on her own. She's a, she's a widow on the streets with no property and no job. Forced to be a beggar. To restore his life, the life that had been taken from him, is to restore life to the mother as well. Verse 22. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house and he gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. I mean, you can contrast that with verse 18. What are you doing here? You're here to kill my son? To now I know you are who you say you are and that your words about your God are true. The background of the story is about 
God, the God of Israel, versus the God of the Babylonians, Baal. And it's a question that's running through the mind of the people at this time, is who has the power over water, which is ultimately the power for life and living, and then who has the power over death? Is it Baal? Is it God? Who's the provider? Who's the protector? It's clear from the story, it's not Baal. It's not Baal, that's how sometimes people say it. It's not Baal. And it's not Mom. The ultimate provider and protector isn't even mom. And the whole picture of motherliness in this particular story is totally counterintuitive. I mean, there's this very clear sense that the essence of provision and protection, while God is at the center of this whole thing, is somehow connected to mysteriously and frustratingly to letting go of those things and allowing God to provide and to protect. And like I said, this is her everything. Her son was her everything. To let God have those kinds of things is what he's, what he's asking of this situation. And it is scary. I was watching a documentary not too long ago called 180 Degrees South. It's a story of a guy who's a surfer who is also a rock climber. And he kind of is exploring some um, different areas. And he, you know, he's on this long you know, sailing journey. And then he ends up in sort of the Patagonia region of Chile and Argentina. And he's going to climb a mountain and do all this kind of stuff. And while he's there, he talks to a woman who's part of the nature preserve effort down there. And she says a line that I thought, my gosh, this is connecting to everything else in every other part of our lives. I thought, man, this is pretty amazing. She says, I want more people to experience this place because I hope they fall in love with it. Because we, we protect the things that we love. The things that we love get protected. Whether or not they're good things, they get protected and shielded and provided for in our lives. And I thought, my gosh, that's, that is true about so much of us. Sometimes those things we protect and that we love actually become our own identity. They become who, they actually replace who we are. I'm not a skier, but I was watching the, um, an interview with um, Lindsey Vaughn, who is an Olympic gold medalist skier. Maybe some of you guys have heard of her. And she's won a couple different world championships for skiing. And she says the most interesting thing. She said, uh, they're asking her about it. She had an injury a couple years ago. She couldn't ski for a little while. And she said, there was... It, if I couldn't have skied, if I had to stop skiing, I don't know what I would have done. I would, have, I would not know who I was. In other words, if I can't ski, I will cease to exist. No skiing equals no Lindsey Vaughn. I thought, my gosh, how tragic her own identity is wrapped up in this one thing. To ask this mom in this story about herself. My guess is in the first three sentences that you would ask her about who she is, she would say somewhere in those first three sentences, well, I'm a mom. That's a really wonderful thing to be. But you have to ask the question about this mom in particular is, what happens, because she has for a moment, she has the very one thing that has created her to be who she is, the sense of being a mom that's gone for a few moments. And you have to wonder if she goes into a full-blown identity existential crisis of who am I? Wow, I'm not a mom. Not only is my life in jeopardy, but I don't know who I am. Could she simply have been able to say, God loves me more than me as a mother? But everyone does this. Every one of us does this to a certain extent. Let me ask you, what are you protecting or defending so much that if it was gone, you would vanish as well? What is it that you hold on to in your own life that it somehow magically removed from you in this moment that you would go, I no longer am existing anymore. I don't, I don't have any real purpose or meaning. 
Is it a role that you play? Is it something that you own? Is it your own kids? For me, I actually feel like I'm kind of like this mom in the story. I, I, have, I have three kids. My oldest is seven years old. He is super passionate about baseball. I'm not a baseball guy. I am, I am realizing now that I'm going to spend the next, the, the rest of my life trying to figure out how to love baseball, to love my son. They're like, this is what we do. He'll watch, he'll record every single Major League Baseball game he can on TV. And watching baseball on TV, I mean, let's be honest, that's torture. <laughs> I mean, when you're at the game at the stadium, there's like distraction. There's like, you know, you're eating the peanuts and you're trying to quickly, you know, like form a clandestine little airplane you can throw over the rail. And, you know, kids, not that I'm suggesting you do that if there's any kids in here. But you're trying to, you know, avoid the usher and throw a plane over there. And you're, there's things that distract you. But watching, when you watch my son who's seven years old watching these games on TV, rewinds every single batter. Dad, did you see that? Did you see what he just did there with his feet? Did you see what he did with his hands? Yeah, I've, I've seen it now for 15 minutes. I get, I get that he's probably going to not hit this ball. You know, I mean, like every single time. And so, or I'll say, I've seen it so much that I know how to hit this. But I could be a Major League Baseball player if I'm in this scenario right here now. But everything. Now, when we play baseball for his little, like, Pony League baseball team, my son has the longest, like, setup for a, for a baseball hit of anybody in the league. So he, and I'm the pitcher, the pitcher for our, it's a machine pitch. So all I got to do is drop a, a ball into the machine. So I'm standing there and he's like seven years old doing this kind of stuff. Tap, tap here, step off time, step off here. He taps his shoes, <laughs> readjusts everything, you know, tap, tap, does one of these, does one of these, does one of these time. I mean, oh my, stay, Dylan, stay there. I started throwing the ball. So he's even at time, ball goes right by him. Dad. Just get in there, buddy. Let's go. So he's finally got this going right here. I mean, it takes forever. And other kids, you know, little kids, seven-year-olds, they're out in the outfield, like, sitting down, trying, playing with the ants and stuff, looking at their shadows. He's taking forever. They don't, I mean, so anyway, he gets up there, and he's got the, the most unbelievable sort of setup. He, you know, he's like, he's seen some guys start like this. You know, I don't know if you've seen some guys. And then they'll step in and hit the ball. So he's trying. I'm like, Dylan, put your feet together. No, Dad. You know, I'm like, okay. So he gets up. And all this setup, and it's a little clink. He barely gets a hold of the ball. And he has to, he outruns his own hit. I mean, that's how hard he hits it, you know. He outruns his own hit to the first base. You know, his face all, you know, hats coming off. And, of course, immediately I'm like, go, 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 get there. Come on, come on, go, go, go. Now, I don't even, I didn't care about baseball. But in that moment, I'm like, that's the most important thing that's ever happened in my life. You know, get the first base, you know. Now, some of you are like, that's so crazy. I'll never be like that as a father. <laughs> I know, you'll never be like that. Because, I, I, but I, the truth is, I'm like, if he hits the ball and he makes it to first base, and I mean, like our last game, he hit, he hit two balls out of the infield, which I nearly exploded with joy. Right? I'm like, oh, oh, he's the greatest. He's the greatest. And most of the time it involves a kid missing, a, like a ball bouncing into their glove and bouncing out because they just don't know what to do. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're the greatest. Now, when he's stoked about baseball, all of a sudden I'm like, I'm the greatest dad. I'm, I'm everything's awesome. The world, the sun is shining. Even if there's clouds, I know there's a sun behind those clouds. Everything's awesome. Every, you're great, and you're great. I love the world, right? And if he happens to get, if he has a horrible game, somehow all of a sudden I'm really wrapped up in it too. Like, oh, well, maybe that's my fault. Maybe I did something. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm a horrible father. You know, all, all this stuff. It's like really, yeah, I go that place. <laughs> my son, the beginning of this year, he had a hard time. He's in first grade. Had a hard time like doing like reading. And you know, I mean, the kids know who's like good at reading and who's not. And they divide the, you know, the kids into a couple different groups. There's like the soaring majestic eagles. <laughs> but they just gently ride on the thermal updrafts of the earth and they just coast through. It's not even a problem for them. And then there's sort of like the acceptable readers. They're like the robins. And they, can, they fly and they understand how to read. And then there's like the emus or the chickens or something where it's like, 
you're a flightless bird, but someday something magic, if we, you know, you, just, you guys are, do your thing. And my, there's my son, the emu or whatever. And they don't, some of you are like, they really, they really give bird names like that. They don't, but in my own mind, they do. And everybody knows my son for a little while was in the emu group and, you know, he can't fly, you know, like you dumb eagles, ah, whatever. So I have, and I have this sense, literally I have, I went all the way down the road, even more so than baseball. Like if he can't do it, it's my fault. And his whole life is going to be ruined, and it's about me, and my gosh, this is him reading, but really it's about me, and everything that he does and all of his successes are somehow wrapped up in me. When I think about my job, maybe for you it's a job that you hold on to, that he said if you lost it, who would you be? Here's, here's my awesome job title. I'm going to show that there. Teaching pastor at the Irvine campus. I teach, our, like I said, our 7.30 service on Sunday evenings. And I'm, I was in the game yesterday as I'm yelling and screaming and, you know, come on, buddy, run, run, run. I'm realizing my voice is getting more and more hoarse because I'm screaming a lot because that's what wonderful parents do. And um, I'm, I'm yelling, I'm realizing my voice is getting more and more hoarse. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I have to teach. I have to teach four services. Thank you, Mission Viejo, here. And then one on 730 at night tonight. And I'm like, I don't know if I lost my voice. What, what would happen? I mean, I got I to teach all these services. And then, I, and then, of course, I jumped off the full-on catastrophic cliff. I was like, what if I could never speak again? <laughs> what if I could never talk again? And now my job, which has now disappeared, which is appropriate. Can you put that back up there again? <laughs> That's my name. Can you um, put the other slide up? There it is. My job says teaching pastor. My, my job is to get up and talk about Jesus-y stuff. And all of a sudden, if that, if I can't talk anymore, then who am I? This is what I do. This is what I'm supposed to do, right? What happens if all of a sudden, do I really have an identity that's beyond, I mean, I I hold on to that pretty tightly. What happens if that's gone? What is it for you that if it was to vanish for a moment, you'd wonder, do I even exist? Do I even have an identity at all? Is Is it a role? Is it something you own? Is it your own kids? Is it a job? Is it some level of comfort? Is it an addiction? What is it? For the mom in the story and for the moms in this room, you are not loved because, you are, because of the role you play as a mother. God loves you because you are fearfully and wonderfully and, and beautifully made. God, God created you and loves you. And the same is true for everybody else in this room. If we didn't have the roles that we presented, we would still be us. We would, you would still be you. You would still be loved. And you and I cannot give life to the things that matter most and are most important in our lives. We wish we could. We wish we could shield them and protect them and provide for them, but we can't. That's not your role. It's not my role. That's the role of God. If you cease to have these roles that you play in your own life that have become your own identity, for me, myself as well, would you still be enough? Would you be enough without all those things that we do and provide and offer to other people because this is what faith is all about. It's the faith of this woman who says, can God still love me if I'm not a mother? Can God still love me if my son does badly in school or in baseball or if I can no longer teach? What does it mean to walk with God who is at times so incredibly confusing who makes very little sense to us? What does it mean to walk with God as the creator, the sustainer, the protector, and the healer, and the one who speaks to us and says, I love you the way that you are, and I love you too much to leave you that way, and you are not your role that you play. That's faith. Would you do this with me? Would you close your eyes? And what I want you to do is some of you are 
Not sure if you can trust the sort of eye-closing thing. You don't, you know, but the truth is I'll know that you didn't close your eyes, and I'll come talk to you afterwards. So close your eyes. Then what I want you to do is this. I want you to put your hands on your own lap. Some of you have done this before at Mission Viejo. This is something this community does every so often. What I want you to do is put your hands on your own lap. I want you to make fists. And don't make them light. Squeeze them really, really tightly to the point where it's uncomfortable. And if you thought, you know, gosh, he'll never know if I don't squeeze my hands really tightly. Again, I will know. So as tightly as you can, close your hands until it's uncomfortable. Hold it there and don't let go. What I want to ask you with your hands so tightly closed is this. What's in there? What is it that is in your hands that if it was to disappear, if it was to vanish, if it was no longer part of your life, you feel like that you would disappear too? That everything you have, you put into protecting and providing for this thing, and if it was gone, you would be gone too. Don't let your hands relax yet. Keep the pressure on. What is in there? What time you and God, what's in there? Is it a role? Is it a job? Is it something you own? Don't let your hands loosen up yet. It should be uncomfortable. Keep holding on. Is it something that's really good? Like being a mom or a dad. But it's become who you are. Now what I want you to do is this. Very, very slowly begin to open your hands slowly. If you do it slow enough, the chances are that your hands won't even let you open themselves. The posture of opening our hands is totally unnatural for people who hold on to things. Slowly, your hands will open. This is a posture of release and letting go. It's a posture that says, God, I trust you to provide for me, to speak to me, to love me in the way that I am, to see about me the things that I do not see, and to give over those things that I think matter so much to who I am and to give them to you. The open hands posture, God, is one which we say to you, you can have it. And it's scary and it's terrifying and we don't know what to do with it, but we're going to let you have that. Jesus, with our hands open. As we look at our own lives, about the things that actually shape us and define us, about really the fundamental question of who we are, God, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us in such a way that we would hear you, that we could only attribute it to you. God, would you, would you, would you minister to us in a way that we know it's from you? That we know that we're loved, not because of the roles that we play or the things that we can give to other people, even the things we can do for you that are right and spiritual and awesome. But God, the, things that, the thing that we want to receive from you today, God, is that you love us. You are the restorer. You are the protector. You are the provider. And so God, on this Mother's Day, we thank you that that is your role to us and we receive it. God, as we sing these words to you, would you receive them as a collective prayer of this group who says to you, God, you're enough. Not the role we play, not, our, not anything else that we do for other people, but that you, God, have shaped us into the people you have intended us to become because you're enough. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. 
For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.